And today we're continuing into the journey of John uh, chapter 6. And last week what we witnessed was this miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Um, and, and what we saw, a few things we saw there, uh, is that their motivation for, for chasing after Jesus uh, may have not been exactly where it needed to be. But Jesus showed compassion anyway, and, and we learn application from that. But sometimes we chase after Jesus, and we might have uh, wrong motives about, about chasing after Jesus. We may want Jesus for what he can give us, not necessarily for who he is. And what we learned last week is that Jesus shows compassion anyway, that he's compassionate anyway. And so we learned that last week. We also learned that uh, Jesus uses questions um, to, to reveal our hearts to us, right? And so we see him ask questions throughout Scripture. And what's odd uh, is that Jesus is not confused uh, uh, and he's not, um, he's not misinformed. Like he knows the answer to the questions that he already asked. He is Jesus Christ. He is God in the flesh. He knows the answers to the question he's asking. So as he asks these questions throughout Scripture and as he asks you questions, as you're confronted with Christ, he, what he's wanting to do is reveal to you your heart, reveal to you what the answers to those questions are. And so he asked Philip, he said, Philip, how are we going to feed all of these people? And he knew what he was going to do. Scripture said he already knew what he was going to do, and he asked Philip that question anyway because what he wanted Philip to see was that Philip was trusting in the physical things, the tangible things. Philip says, I don't, I don't know how we're going to do this. We can't, there's not enough money around to feed this many people. And so Jesus was exposing something in his heart, right? And so that's what Jesus does for us whenever, we, uh, whenever we're asked those questions by him. And so another thing we learn is that he, we, considering uh, this church, this family, and this community, uh, we're very small, and we're, we're uh, very weak, and we're surrounded by a great need. Just like, just like Philip felt, and just like, just like Andrew felt in the conversations they were having when Jesus was feeding the 5,000, they just looked at this multitude of people, and it was really roughly around 18 to 20,000 people there, and they looked around and said, how are we going to feed these people? We're so small, we're so weak, it's impossible to take care of this great need. And Jesus already had a plan. And so here we are, Sulphur Community Church, small, weak, feeble, in a, in a, in a massive need around us, right? You just, you drive through our community, you drive through our city, and you see that the need is great, that the multitude are in need. And so what Jesus shows us here is that he already knows what he wants to do. He already knows what he wants to do at this church and how he's going to meet that need, and he's going to do it. We're not going to do it. He's using us to meet those needs, but he has his own intentions on how he's going to do it, and it's just for us to, to keep our eyes on him and to follow him for whatever he would have us. And so he's ready to receive um, what we offer him, however small, however weak it may be. He's, he's ready to receive that and, and to multiply that into something great and powerful and effective for the kingdom. He can do that. And so that's what we learned last week. And today we get this snapshot, this great snapshot of the entire gospel. Uh, and just this one little uh, section of, of verses that Jesus comes to his disciples uh, in the dark of, of the night and, and in the middle of a storm. And this passage gives us an overview of everything Jesus came to do. We get that in these few verses. So if you would follow with me, starting in verse 15, um, I'm sorry, verse 16. Whenever, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. 
It was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. And then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So this scripture, this, this part, this passage of scripture is very unique. Um, John is telling us that something historical has happened here. Um, and there, this is something that actually happened. And so as we walk through the, the gospel of John, we've already looked at some miracles and some things that just really seem abnormal to us today. I want you to know that these are historical events. These are things that actually happened. I need you to believe that, that miracles that Jesus was doing here were, were actual events. It wasn't some kind of comparison to something else. These are historical events. And so John is telling us something that, that has happened historically. So this isn't, a, this isn't prophetic. Uh, this isn't, this isn't a, a apocalyptic. And so the Bible, is, it, it, Bible has genres, right? Uh, so you see like Revelation is an apocalyptic book. Uh, and that's where it points. And, and Daniel has, Dan, the book of Daniel has some, some, uh, some language that's apocalyptic, right? And so you see that. And you have, you have poetry, right? You see, you see Ecclesiastes. You see uh, Psalms. You see uh, wisdom books. Uh, so the, the, the Bible has uh, sections of genre in it. And so we read these as historical, much like Genesis, much like Exodus and 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and 1 Kings and, and 2 Kings. These are historical things. This is a narrative that has taken place. And so here we have history, yet John is telling us this story not just to record an event. He's not just saying, here's just a historical event that has taken place. He's pointing us to a greater reality, and he's packing it full of application. Full of application. This is a great snapshot of the gospel. And he's given us this uh, historical event so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why we have this section of scripture. That's why we have the gospel of John. That's why we have the Bible. So that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so look with me at verse 17. It was, it was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Now, it was literally nighttime. It was, it was literally dark, and it, Jesus literally has not come to them yet. He hasn't shown up to them yet. But to read the Gospel of John as a whole letter and, and miss what he's communicating here, we, we, we would mess up. Uh, we would miss something here because I want to share with you just a few verses. And, and the Gospel of John is just packed with these kind of verses. Chapter 1, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Chapter 3, starting at verse 19. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever, come, whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Over and over and over John contrasts light and darkness throughout his entire gospel so that you may believe that we are in the dark 
and that Jesus is the light. Throughout all of his gospel, you see this. So, so maybe just a, a little nugget for you for the rest of your life. As you read the gospel of John, you look for the word light and you look for the word dark because he's communicating something to you. He's communicating that this is you and this is Jesus. This is you and this is Jesus. This is the world and this is the kingdom. And they, they don't look the same. As a matter of fact, they're kind of opposed to one another. That the darkness hates the light. And so even in this little small passage where these fishermen are crossing the sea and it's dark and it's, it, it's a bad storm, we don't just blow over that because John is always communicating light and dark, light and dark, light and dark. In the middle of this black, deep darkness, the disciples are without Jesus. They're without Jesus, without the light of the world coming into the middle of our darkness. We cannot see that's what John communicates all through his gospel. We don't know God without Jesus. We cannot know God without Jesus. So many people are looking for God. Let me, let me say this. Every single person in the world is looking for God. Every single person in the world. I don't care how, what camp you put yourself in. If you're atheist, agnostic, just irreligious, or you're on the other side where you're the most religious, obedient person in the world, every single person is looking for God, and you cannot find God without Jesus. You cannot know God without Jesus. I'm looking for God. Oh, and what we see, uh, what I constantly see is that people uh, who would say they're not believers, they're searching for God, they're looking for him around Jesus instead of looking for him through Jesus. And that's, what, that's what's being communicated here. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 would say, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You want to find God, you find God through Jesus. He is the exact representation of God. So if you want to know God, if you want to get to, get to know God, if you want to be with him, if you want to walk with him, you can only do so through the light that Jesus brings. You can only do that through the light that Jesus brings. So we don't, we don't know God without Jesus. And if I can be honest with you, we don't even know ourselves without Jesus. We don't even know ourselves. Jesus comes to illuminate us so that we might see our true nature. That we might see who we really are. If you ask anyone who's, who's put their faith in Jesus, there was this moment where Jesus lit their life up and they were able to see their true nature. And they were able to see, or I'm going to tell you, I was able to see my true nature. And I was able to see that apart from Christ, I can't fix this crooked, depraved self. I can't do it. I need Christ. And I didn't even know that until he lit my heart up, until he illuminated my life. I didn't even know that. So we don't know ourselves. Now, this is both good and bad news. It's both good and bad news because the dominant culture of our day um, is that you get to define who you want to be, right? Like, I'm just, I'm, I'm just going to do me. I'm going to be what I'm going to be, or I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm just going to live for me. No one understands me but me. So that, that's what dominates our culture today, that we really just get, we get to pick who we want to be. And you don't know who you are without Christ showing you who you are. You can't know that. And so I cringe a little, to be honest with you. Brothers and sisters, when, when I hear you say that, I'm just going to do me, or no one, I'm just going to be who I'm going to be. Nobody knows me. I'm just going to live for me. I, just, I cringe a little bit when I hear that because Christ was the only one who's going to show you who you are. And when you see that, 
you will see your great need for him. And you're not just going to do you, and it's not just going to be about you. It's going to be about him. And so we are in the dark about who we are until Jesus illuminates all those little dark places in our heart. We're in the dark about who we are. And here's why I say it's both good and bad news, right? That's the, that's the bad news. But the good news is that when, when he illuminates our heart, we get to see both how depraved we are and how much God loves us. We get to see both of those. That's the, that's the, that's the gospel, is that we see those two things happening together. We are hopelessly depraved, utterly hopeless without Christ. And the light of Jesus reveals that we are in this utter darkness and that we're unable to find our way to the Father. Like that's what his light does, right? And, and also that he is the only one who could light our way to rescue us from this dark prison of sin and brokenness. He's the only one that can do that. And so we're, yes, bad news, good news is we are overwhelmingly loved by God. We see how hopeless we are in our current state without Jesus, but we also see how much we're loved by God when, we, when our hearts are lit up by Jesus. Romans 5, verse 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of God, he sent his son to die for us. That's love. That's love. So with your hearts illumined, you can acknowledge that you're a broken and rebellious sinner so that you can receive the love of God through Jesus. So it happens both ways. And we learned this in Ephesians. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. That is love. In Christ, we have been redeemed by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Redeemed. We've been purchased. We've been bought. We were enslaved to sin, and now we've been purchased, bought out of that, and we've been redeemed through what Jesus has done on the cross. We've been adopted into the family of God. We have a family now. We were lost and wandering, and we have been brought in. We have been purchased from slavery and brought into a family, and we have been given a new name. God loves you. He absolutely loves you. And knowing this, why in the world do we run to foolishness to find out who we are? Right? Why do we run to our job to define who we are, what we do, and our vocation? Why do, we, why do we go there to try to define who we are? Why do we try to define who we are by our skin color? Why do we do that foolishness? Why do we define who we are by our culture, right? This is who we are. This is our, our culture. Why do we find our identity in that? Why do we find our identity in our culture, in our talents? Why do we find our identity in our bank accounts. Why do we do this? All of these things, and, and I'll let you fill in the blank for you personally. I've just listed some of the big ones that I, I see a lot of people as well as myself struggle with, but I'll let you fill in the blank with whatever foolish thing you do that lets you define, that tells you who you are and where you're going. 
But all of these things tend to tell us where, we, where we're going to go. All of them do. And, it's, and as if the darkness is not bad enough, look at verse 18. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Not only are they hopelessly lost in the dark, but now there's this violent storm that's going to add to the chaos. Right? It's dark. We can't see. And not only that, but now there's this violent storm. And so we learned in verse 1 that the, the disciples as well as Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and they, they, when they got to the other side, uh, that's where Jesus encountered this invalid man at the pool called Bethesda. Um, and then he had this encounter with the religious leaders. Uh, they didn't like what he was doing. They wanted to kill him for uh, healing this guy and telling him to, to do some things on the Sabbath. They made up a rule, and, and Jesus broke it, and they were mad and wanted to kill him about it. Um, so they had that conversation, that encounter, and then he, he left from there. Uh, and, and they crossed over. So now they're crossing back after feeding the 5,000. They went across, fed the 5,000. Now they're coming back. And so just a little bit of geography, the Sea of Galilee is about 600 feet below sea level. So it's basically sitting in a bowl. Um, and so, so cool air from the, from the, from the southeast would, would rush in and rush down onto the top of the waters. And the, and the water, there's a lot of moisture in the air right there. And so that cool air hitting that warm water would churn up the waters and cause these short uh, uh, burst of, of uh, storms, um, similar to hurricanes, but not, not so massive. And so here we see that it's gone from bad to worse. It's dark, and now this storm has come, and, and I just want to let this be a reminder for us that not only are we broken by sin, but all of creation is broken with sin. Like, we were broken as well as creation. And so you can engineer all kinds of habits. You can create all kinds of rhythms in your life. You can write all kinds of safety procedures and all of these other things in your life. But at best, at best, you and I are between storms. At best. I say this all the time. Brothers and sisters, you're either just coming out of a storm. You're you might be going through one right now as, as we talk through this text or one's knocking at your door. Every one of us. We're either coming up, we're off the heels of a storm right now, we're right dead in the center of one or we're in the crosshairs of one. So at best, we're, we're in between storms because sin has broken creation. Sin has broken creation. Creation was subjected to futility. Creation is in bondage to corruption. Creation is groaning because of what happened in the garden. Because of what Adam and Eve has, has, they have done. And so these guys are in the middle of the sea without any glimmer of light. Without even a star in the sky in the midst of chaos and a violent storm. Imagine just how small and how helpless they feel. Imagine it. They're in the middle of this lake. They're about three or four miles out, which puts them about middle, midway of the lake. Small and helpless. And in the midst of all this, look what Jesus does. Verse 19, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Not frightened because it's dark. Not frightened because it's a bad storm. Scripture only indicates that this storm was pretty rough, that uh, they were having to give it all they, they had to handle this boat. So that's the, only, that's the only thing we pick up on. And so I just want to remind you that these guys are professional fishermen, and this was the lake that they were familiar fishing on. 
right? And so they've likely been in this situation numerous times. So what frightens them is not the storm and not the darkness. What frightens them is the power and the authority of Jesus. This is the one who spoke the sea into existence, and now he's walking on it. That's what they're afraid of. They're afraid because who in the world can understand this guy? Think about what they've seen so far. And now they've encountered Jesus on the, on the middle of a lake, him walking on water. Who, who can understand this guy? That's what frightens him. And so maybe just to bring some reality to it, wouldn't you have a few questions? Like, wouldn't, if you had an encounter with Jesus of this magnitude, wouldn't you have a few questions? Can I trust you? Can, can, I, can I trust you? Is, is this even real? Am I imagining this or am I completely insane right now? If this is real, Jesus, if you can do this, I sure hope you're on my side. If, if, if you're doing all of these things, I sure hope you're on my side. If you have the power and the authority that, that I suppose you have, I sure hope you're on my side. And here's what I want you to see. It's easy for us to read this and think that these disciples are just being faithless, right? Like, oh, they're just afraid and they're just, they're just being faithless. But if you're in a crisis right now, like if you're in a crisis moment like at, at this time, in your life, in the middle of a sea, in the middle of a storm, in the middle of the night, and Jesus shows up in the middle of it all, wouldn't you have a few questions? Like, wouldn't you have a few questions? Like, are you for me or are you against me, Jesus? In the middle of all this, are you for me or are you against me? These men are responding out of fear for how different Jesus is. And you might be Mr. Spiritual or Mrs. Spiritual and never get like this, but if, if you're people, um, if, you're, if you're the kind of person like I know in the, in the real world and your marriage may be in the tank or your family is just dysfunctional, uh, you have a, an addiction that is absolutely crippling you and you sense Jesus invading this chaos, invading this space and he's speaking into this mess, it can be a little bit frightening. It could be a little bit scary. When you talk about Jesus to those who have been resisting him, um, most of the time their, their response is, I know I'm speaking personally, but I, I know I've had this conversation with other people as well, but it's like, so what will he do with me when I, when I let him in my boat? Like, what's, what's going to happen? Where is he going to take me? What is he going to ask of me when I, when I take this step, when, when I allow him into the boat, when I say, Jesus, come on in the boat? What is... What am I signing up for? That was the worry and the concern that I had. I'm like, I don't know if I'm ready for my whole life to be turned upside down. And that's what this preacher guy keeps saying, that, uh, you know, if I invited Jesus into my heart, my world's going to be turned upside down. I don't know if I want that. But today I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. So Jesus responds with the words that are life-altering. They were life-altering for me. I hope they would be life-altering for you because they were life-altering for these disciples and exactly what they needed to hear. Verse 20, but he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. It's me. It's Jesus. Don't be afraid. And he's using the same language. It is I am. So to remind you who I am, I am God. 
don't be afraid. Jesus doesn't belittle their circumstances like, oh, come on, guys. I mean, you, you're freaking out a little bit here, and it's not that big of a deal. Are you, you're familiar with this situation. Why are you making such a big deal about it? Suck it up. And he doesn't promise that the, that the storm's going to get better. He doesn't promise that things are going to, like, hey, man, let me in the boat, and everything's just going to line out. He doesn't make that promise either. In the middle of the storm, in the chaos, when all our attention is focused on our circumstances, when all their attention was focused on their circumstances, Jesus says, hey, hey, look here. Put your attention on me. Fix your eyes on me. Fix your heart on me. Not on the things that are happening around you. I am here. Do not be afraid. I'm the one who created everything. I'm the one who came to set everything back how it is supposed to be. You can tell in this storm that creation is broken and is the reason why I'm here. Don't be afraid. I'm the one who turned water into wine. I'm the one who healed the sick. I'm the one who fed the 5,000. And I'm the only one who can cast out fear. I'm the only one. Later on in another letter that John would write, he would say, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Jesus is saying, I'm here. And I'm here because I love you. And so you fix your eyes on me, not on the circumstances around you. I'm not going to promise you that just every, the storm's just going to settle and everything's just going to be fine whenever I get in the boat. But I'm with you. I'm here, and, you, and I'm the reason why you are in this situation. So no matter what you're going through in your life, it pales. Listen to me. It pales in comparison to the power and the strength and the authority of Jesus. So whatever you are going through, Jesus is bigger and Jesus is stronger. And he has control of all of it, every bit of it. He has control of it. So look at verse 21, and we're going to try to land this here. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So here's what I want you to see. Jesus has crossed through the hell that you find yourself in to bring you back to the Father. Jesus has done that. He's come for you. So whatever storm you're in, whatever dark space you're in, Jesus has come so that you might be brought back to the Father, a Father who loves you deeply. And you can't even see the reality unless Jesus shows this to you, unless he lights up your heart to show you this. You can't even see this. So what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a believer in Jesus like, what, is, what does that look like? Well, it, this text does say that it means that you're glad that Jesus is in your boat. Like, you're glad, you're happy, you're joyful that Jesus is with you. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means that Jesus isn't compartmentalized in my life. That Jesus isn't here on Sunday where, where I show up here and then, then I, you know, I'm somewhere else the rest of the week. Or, or Jesus is in my community group compartment. That's where he belongs, and that's where we hook up and meet, right? It means that Jesus is in every single part of your life, and as he does this, you will always, always be delivered through the storms. Always. So, it might not always be as we see it here. 
what we see here is that Jesus shows up, hops in the boat, storms over. It could be, it could be that Jesus would want to deliver you through the storm with a miracle. Immediate, you're out. I'm here. Do not be afraid. Or he sometimes may deliver you through the storm, meaning he's going to ride it out with you. That the storm's not going away. We're just going to ride it through, and I'm with you. So he delivers us through miracles. He delivers us through the storm with him. And as he does that, he's always whispering to us, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. We're not coming out of this storm, but my grace is sufficient for you. Let's keep going. And sometimes, and here's, I'm going to go ahead and say that this isn't probably the popular point of any sermon, any message that might be taught anywhere, but I think it's, I think it's only fair that we be honest as we look at life and how Jesus engages us. Sometimes he delivers you unto himself. Sometimes the storm kills us. Sometimes the storm defeats us. But we're delivered unto him. This is when, this is what I'll say that this is when death means grace. Like this is when death is the means of God's grace. Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, yes, yes, and I will rejoice. He's writing this as he's getting ready to die. To be killed, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. You see, Paul, he didn't cut it no other way. He said, regardless, for me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So sometimes, sometimes we get through the storm like Paul got through the storm. <laughs> through suffering and persecution unto death so that we can be with Jesus. How different would the world look if Christians actually believe that heaven is a greater grace than the deliverance here on earth? How different would the world be if we actually believe that heaven is better than this place, that being with Jesus fully and finally is better than this place. But our lives don't line up that way. Our lives say this is our home, and we're going to do everything we can to preserve this because this is our home, and I'm going to avoid any storm or any darkness or any trial or any persecution or any trouble, any trials, because I don't want to lose my life. And Jesus says, that's how you find life. So the big idea, and we'll close here, without Jesus, and I've said this over and over and over through this message, without Jesus, you're in the dark, and the storms will win. Without Jesus, you are in the dark, you cannot see God. You cannot find God. You cannot even see yourself. And the, the storms will win. But with Jesus, he brings the light and deliverance into our chaos, into the noise, into the storms, into the darkness. He brings the light to us. 
And so I would pray that today, um, as, as we close, that all of our activity and all of our, our preaching and, and teaching and looking at Scripture and, and being uh, in fellowship with one another here would encourage you to, to see Jesus. I know we have a lot of visitors here and it's a lot of, um, a lot of new stuff going on for us today as well. But at the end of the day, and this is what we've prayed for, is that during this time that we could just really focus on Jesus. There's a lot of activity and a lot of things that we have going on today, but that's what we want in this moment was for, for you to see Jesus, for Jesus to engage you. And so I'm going to pray for us. Um, and, and one of the things that we don't uh, normally do here is um, just have a time where um, we, you would come to the front and talk to some pastors or whatever. But pastors are available. Leaders are available. Uh, if you would want to meet and talk with someone after the service, uh, we would love to meet with you and, and discuss the gospel with you and talk about Jesus with you um, if you would want to discuss that. And so let's pray together. If we could all stand.